In your Bible today, Genesis chapter number 3 and then chapter 4. And so turn there, and I'll give you a few minutes to find it. And I think that's adequate. You've probably got it. So Genesis chapter number 3, stand with me as we read God's Word together, please. Somebody said to me, why do you have people stand when you read the Bible every time? Maybe I ought to remind you. You know, um, I know you get tired of standing up and sitting down sometimes. We, we kind of give you a good exercise regimen here some, some Sundays. But you know why we do it? We want to do everything we can to honor the Word of God. We want people to know that there's something very, very special about this book. Amen. And so that's why we stand. We stand just as we honored our men and women a moment ago. We stand in honor of the Word of God. And I read from Genesis 3 and verse 15. I will put enmity or hostility, hatred, animosity between thee and the woman. And between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Chapter 4, verse 1. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. She again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. In process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, very full of wrath. And his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? Why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, Sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And you may be seated. Thank you. So my message today is two seeds, two sons, and two humanities. And it's a message in which I want to contrast, I want to compare and contrast two different seeds, two different sons and groups of people. I want to show you two sons and compare and contrast Cain and Abel, and then I want to contrast two humanities, the way of Cain and the way of Abel. 
We begin with Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. It's one of the most important verses in all the Bible. I hope you have noted that. I hope you will remember that. Actually, there's not a more important scripture that I can think of in all of the canon of scripture, all of the Bible, than Genesis 3 and 15. It's been given a name by theologians. It's called the Protevangelium, which means the prior gospel or the first gospel, because it's the first hint of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the first hint of good news. And it's such a critically important passage because right here we have a prophecy of a future Messiah, that someday the Messiah will come and make the things right that have changed and have been made wrong in the fall of man in his sin. And so this prophecy of a future Messiah who's going to come to the earth and is going to defeat Satan, that really is the essence, the kernel, the heart of the Christian faith today. I began by talking about two seeds and compare and contrast them, and I go back to chapter 3 and verse 15, and we read there these words, the Lord said unto the serpent, so he's talking to the serpent who is possessed of Satan, so he's talking to the devil, because you have done this, because you have deceived this woman and man, you are cursed above all the cattle, the other beasts on the earth, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust thou shalt eat all the days of thy life, and I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Underline in your Bible that term, that phrase, thy seed and her seed. Two seeds compared and contrasted here in this wonderful and important verse. So this was spoken to Satan who possessed the serpent at this time. And I want you to notice in verse 15 that the promised seed is a person. It's a person. You see the phrase there, his heel, his heel, it shall bruise his heel. So it's a person. Now, normally the seed, we speak of the seed is coming from a man, from the male. We're thinking of the sperm that is essential, of course, in in uh, reproduction. And normally when we use the word seed, it almost always refers to the idea of the male. But notice, if you will, it's her seed here that the Lord is talking about. And there's the hint of the virgin birth itself, that the coming Messiah will not be born of a male and a female. He will be born of the seed of the female without the male at all involved in the process. And I want you to keep your hand there, and I'm turning to Hebrews chapter 2, and I'll show you the fulfillment of Genesis 3 and 15. In Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse number 13, I read these words, I will put my trust in him. And again, Behold, I and the children which God hath given me, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took part of the same, he being Jesus, 
Jesus became flesh and blood like the children of men, and He took part of, of, of our of overturning our sinful condition. And note now with me, number one, three things here that it says that Christ did to fulfill Genesis 3.15. Number one, it says that through death, He would destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And so number one, when Christ came, this verse says He will destroy Satan's power of death. Before the fall, or before Christ came, rather, before Christ entered the world, Satan had the power of death. You remember he threatened Job with death, and then God said, don't put your hand on Job. But he had the power to actually take the lives of human beings. Now, that's before Christ came. After the cross, the book of Hebrews teaches us, Satan no longer has the power to take your life. He cannot do that arbitrarily and on his own. But here, the Bible said that at the cross, he destroyed Satan's power to take a human life. And in verse 14, also, he's going to destroy Satan. Now, he did a great part of the destruction of Satan and his power, even at the cross. But he hasn't finally annihilated the devil yet. That will happen at the end of the tribulation period and the end of the millennial period when Satan is tossed into the lake of fire. But until then, Satan is, his power has been curtailed since, uh, since the cross. And then there's something else, the third thing. He'll destroy Satan's power of death. He will destroy Satan himself ultimately. But if you will look back in verse 13 that I read, the last part of it, is, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. Now, Christ is the spokesman here. And this says that Christ is going to have children. And if I compare that with Isaiah 53, I won't turn you there, Isaiah 53 and 10, it says that Christ will one day see his seed. It talks about Jesus dying on the cross, the horrible death, the suffering and the pain that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered on the cross. And then it says, though, that there is a reward to the Lord Jesus for his suffering. And what is the reward? He will see of his seed. In other words, through the cross, we have become the children of God. We are actually the children of Jesus Christ. He is our spiritual father. He bought our souls through his blood sacrifice at Calvary. And so, the promises, everything that's contained in Genesis 3 and 15 is fulfilled here in Hebrews chapter 2. Now, I want you to understand, though, something in the bigger picture of what is happening here. Adam, from the time that God created him until the time that he sinned, Adam was under a covenant, a covenant with God. And what was the covenant? Now, a covenant is a formal agreement between two or more people, a formal agreement between two or more people. And Adam had a covenant with God. And what was the covenant? It was very simple. God said to him, do this and you will live. Carry out this simple commandment. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree. If you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will die. 
But if you abstain from the fruit of the tree, then you will live. That was the agreement between God and Adam. And so Adam lived under what we call the covenant of works. Theologically, that's the way we describe it. One law he had to obey. He didn't have ten commandments. He had one. He couldn't even keep one. By the way, you and I probably wouldn't have done a whole lot better. But at any rate, he couldn't even keep one. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree, the covenant of works. And prior to the fall, of course, Adam could approach God on his own merits. He had never sinned. Think about this. Before the fall, Adam didn't need a Savior. He didn't need a Savior. He had never sinned. He had perfect access to God. But the moment that he took that fruit and ate of that fruit, and by the way, the Bible says he wasn't deceived. His wife was, but he wasn't. He did it intentionally. And the moment that he rebelled, disobeyed God, and ate that fruit, from that moment on, he had broken the covenant, and he needed a Savior. He couldn't approach God anymore because Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, our sins have separated us from God. Sin is the barrier that keeps man from having free access to God as Adam and Eve did until the fall, until they sinned. And he not only now needed a mediator to approach God, he now not only had forfeited all the blessings of the covenant, all the things that God had told him, they're gone now because he is living in rebellion against Almighty God. And so Adam's loss was beyond our comprehension. Adam and Eve threw away the opportunity to approach God directly. And so today, you and I can't approach God directly. Think about that. You and I cannot approach God directly. We have to have a mediator, a go-between, if you will. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews again that there is one mediator between God and men, the man who? Christ Jesus. Christ is our mediator. He is our go-between. Our sins have separated us, but He bore our sins and took away our sins. And so now we go to Him. We go to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, since Adam fell, the only way you and I have a right to approach God is through His grace. In fact, it's not a right, is it? It's a privilege. God extends His grace to us, and He requires, that, of course, that there be a sinless mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And since Adam sinned, we approach God then through the merits of Jesus Christ. Often when I pray here and lead the congregation in our pastoral prayer on Sunday mornings, I will say, Lord, we come to you on the merits of Jesus Christ. Do you understand now the significance of that phrase? I can't come to the Lord directly and say, Lord, based on my merits, I come to you because I have no merits, really. What I call my own righteousness, what you think of me, and say, well, he's a righteous man. Our righteousness is flawed. The only perfect righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus Christ offered his blood as a sacrifice for your sins and for my sins. And so now I come not on my merits, but I come on the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. And you see, he came to the earth, and he lived a sinless, perfect, spotless life in order that he could offer his blood as an innocent sacrifice for us. Adam failed in his covenant, but Jesus kept his covenant, and he presented himself at the cross as the Lamb of God who can take away our sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, there's a reference there, and it refers to Adam as the first Adam, and then it refers to Jesus as the second Adam. Have you noticed that in reading that great passage? Adam, the first Adam, was the founder, if you will, the head of the human race, but he failed. His blunder, his sin, his evil act was so great, he failed forfeited his entire covenant with God and the blessings of it. And so now Jesus comes, and 1 Corinthians 15, 45 refers to him as the second Adam. In other words, we're going to have a restart now. Adam messed up so badly that we're going to have a reset. We're using that word a lot today. And we're going to have a reset. We're going to have a restart. And Jesus is going to produce a whole new race of people, if you will, people who are born again by his Spirit. Francis Schaeffer, one of my favorite of all theologians, said this. Listen to this quote. It's so profound. Before the fall, Adam approached God, and he only needed to bow once on the basis of God being his creator. But we must bow twice, once to God as our creator and once to him as our redeemer. Think of that. Boy, I've never read a more profound statement. Adam only needed to bow to God once on the basis of God being the creator. Now, that's before he sinned. But we bow twice, once to him as our creator and once to him as our redeemer. Two seeds, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman who is the Lord Jesus Christ, our wonderful Savior today. Boy, that's good news there. I don't know, the preaching may not be very good, but the, but the content is fantastic, is it not? I mean, I can't think of a greater thing to preach on Memorial Day or any other day than just the fact of how our wonderful Savior came and took over where Adam failed, and that now makes us a new race of people, if you will, a spiritual race of people. Now, number two, go to chapter four with me, verse one. And here we read again the story of Cain and Abel, familiar story to you. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. And bear Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. Now, what I want to remind you is that Cain and Abel are literal historical characters. They weren't walking around with a leopard skin, you know, tunic. And they weren't walking around with a club in their hand and a Cro-Magnum man and all that malarkey. 
that you've heard about through the years. They were literal, historical people. They're not figurative. This is not a myth. This is not just a story. This is a true account of the most ancient history that man ever experienced. This is the Word of God. So I don't want you to miss that. It is absolutely essential to our understanding here today. A true account of the first baby who was ever born. His name was Cain. His mother held the little baby, and she said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. I can't prove this by the Bible, but it, it's common sense to me that Eve looked down at that little boy and thought, well, he's the fulfillment maybe of Genesis 3.15. He might be the promised seed that God had told me about. Of course, he wasn't. That would come centuries and millennia later. But I wonder if she didn't think that God had now given her the promised one. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 2, she bears the second son. She again buries brother Abel. And it says Abel was a keeper of sheep. He was a shepherd. Cain was a farmer, a tiller of the ground. Now, here's what I want you to know about these men. Both of these men are defined by their relationship with God. You may want to put that in your Bible there and note it somewhere. Both of these men are defined when you, by their relationship with God. When you think of them, what do you think about? You think about their offering, why one was accepted and one was, re was rejected. Their whole lives were defined by one thing, the day they brought the offering to God and accepted one and he rejected the other. And why do I make that point to you? Listen to me. Do not miss this today. Ladies and gentlemen, whether you believe it, whether you understand it, whether you accept it or not, your life is going to be defined by your relationship with God. You see, you can be the president, the CEO. You can be the big, big man in, on the block. You can be the richest. You can be the best looking. You can be all the superlatives you want to throw out there. But I want to tell you one thing. After this life is over and people look back on it, you will be defined by one thing, your relationship with the Almighty, where your soul will be for all of eternity. That defines these guys, Cain and Abel. And I preach funerals so often, too often. And when I stand here so often, I will say in the funeral, Everything this person did, good and bad throughout life, it, it, it stands for itself. But right now, as we stand over that casket, there's only one thing that matters. You see, their life is defined by their relationship with God. No matter what they accomplished in life, if you own the whole world and lose your soul, see, life is defined by your relationship with God, not the positions that you held, not how much money you got in the bank, not how popular you were with other people. Life is defined by how we relate to God. Verse 4, Abel comes and offers God acceptable worship. 
In verse 3, his brother offers God unacceptable worship. So we have two worships here to compare and contrast. Abel's offering, he had to take one of the little lambs from his flock, and he offered a blood sacrifice, a blood sacrifice of an innocent victim, a sacrificial victim, a picture of Jesus Christ, an innocent sacrificial death. And he offered that to the Lord. In Luke chapter 11, I'm not going to turn there and read the passage in verse 50 and 51, though. Do you know Jesus called Abel a prophet? He called him a prophet. So prophets preach. Prophets foretell the future. And prophets preach to people about their lives, just as I'm doing right now. I'm fulfilling a prophetic role when I stand here and preach and teach to you the Word of God. And Jesus said Abel was a prophet, which infers that he knew exactly what this sacrifice was about. God had told these two brothers what he wanted in a sacrifice, what he expected them to do. And Abel obeyed him to the T. Now, I want you to turn Real quickly with me to Hebrews chapter 4 to that, pardon me, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4. Hebrews chapter 11, because it is that great Hall of Fame chapter. The heroes of the Christian faith, the Old Testament heroes of the faith are named here. And in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 4, Abel is in the Hall of Fame. In fact, he's the first one mentioned by name. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And by doing this, he obtained witness that he was a righteous man. So Abel was a prophet, and Hebrews says he was a righteous man, as proven by his obedience to the Lord in the matter of the sacrifice that he offered. And so Things haven't really changed a whole lot, have they? Because Abel brought a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. By faith, the Bible says, he offered. And salvation today is how? By grace, through faith, in the shed blood of the Lamb of God. Perfect picture of salvation here from this first generation man. But in verse 3, his brother, in process of time, came, it came to pass, he brought of the fruit of the ground, an offering to the Lord. Unacceptable worship. You see, his, his offering was not, doesn't say it was by faith. And it, doesn't, it wasn't a blood sacrifice. Blood was required because it represented the life, the life of an innocent person. And so he brings pumpkins and cantaloupes, watermelons and corn and beans and whatever he grew. He brought these beautiful vegetables and fruits, the fruit of the ground. I bet it was the best he had. It would have won the blue ribbon at the, uh, at the county fair. But it was not what God had said for them to do. Here's the deal with Cain. He had a better idea than God. 
You know, I've observed that in people all the time. They define worship for what they like, what they want, what they feel when they come to church. Instead of saying, well, what does the Bible say? What does God require in worship? And he offered the best that he had, the fruit of the ground, which was the best works that he could offer. Abel came through the Lamb of God. Cain came through his own merits, his own good works. That's what the vegetables represent. And Abel's offering was accepted. Cain's was not. Cain heard the same word that Abel heard. But he thought he had a better idea. He knew better how to worship God than God had directed. Be careful that you don't fall into that. And so he goes out into the field. And in verse number 5, he was very wroth and his countenance fell. And he killed his brother. He took his brother's life. And God said to him, why is your countenance fallen? The guilt shows on your face. You know, when we sin grievously, people can even observe it. And God said, why is your countenance fallen? You can be accepted. You don't have to. Uh, you could be accepted. And Cain said, no, I don't, I don't want to be accepted on that basis. And in his anger, he kills his brother, and sin separates these two brothers. Now, next week, I'm going to preach on the idea of sin separating because it separates us in every way. You, in America today, we're seeing how sin separates a people and a whole culture and a society. This is the first murder by the firstborn, sin separating. God says, where's your brother? And he says, he's not my responsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? He's a big boy. He can take care of himself. But in Revelation chapter 6, like those elders there at the throne of God who are crying out for the martyrs who have died on the earth, the blood of Abel cries out for justice. Down in Uvalde, Texas, the blood of 19 little children and two teachers cries out for justice. When innocent people are murdered and killed, justice ought to be done. Their blood cries out for it. But you and I don't live in a perfect society. We don't live in a, we live in fact in a wicked society, so justice is not always done. Now let me remind you the point I made when I first started this you and I will be defined by our relationship to God. That's how Cain is remembered. He had a better idea about worship. He rejected God's will, and he ended up going on to worse things. Abel, his brother, offered by faith. He heard the Word of God. He believed the Word of God. He acted on the Word of God, and he left the rest up to the Lord. And the Lord accepted him. Lastly, and real quickly, there's two humanities here. And what do I mean by that? I mean there are two streams now of people that begin to develop. The line of Cain and the line of Abel. First John chapter 3, and I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there with me. 
But in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 11, this is the message that we've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and slew his brother, and whereof slew he him? Why did he slay his brother? Because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Wow, what a statement. I've never really focused on that verse before in my life, but here's what the verse is saying, that when people disobey God and they're evil, there's an antagonism between them and righteous people. If you do right, some people are not going to like you. That's exactly what the verse says. Because Abel did the right thing and Cain didn't. He got angry and jealous and envious, and he murdered his brother. Jude, chapter, Jude verse 11 says, Woe to those who have gone in the way of Cain, the line of Cain. Now look in chapter 4 in your Bible. I want to show you something about this line of Cain. Genesis chapter 4. In verse 17, these are not Cro-Magnum man. These are not cavemen. In chapter 4, verse 17, they built cities. So we now are beginning to see the development of cities. In verse 20, they raised cattle. So they domesticated. They had domesticated cattle. They milked the cattle. They no doubt ate beef because they weren't listening to God anyhow at that time. In verse Number 21, they had musical instruments, harps, and organs, quite sophisticated, more than people think about today. To create an organ, you have to understand air going over a bellow or from a bellows and going over pipes and so on. So we have technological advancement going on here early in the, in the Scripture. And then go down to verse 22, they studied metallurgy. They studied working with metals. And so they create works out of brass and out of iron. These are sophisticated people. These are not what you've been told in some of your evolutionary-based classes. And this, as we go down through the Bible from now on, all the way through chapter 11, we're going to see a divergence. We're going to see a division, a separation. The line of Cain an ungodly civilization is developing until finally God is going to judge it in the flood. And this ungodly, ungodly culture is characterized by wicked people. Wickedness is now growing exponentially from that first sin there that Adam and Eve, uh, uh, that they uh, acted on. This Canaanite culture is now man-centered as evidenced by Cain. He wants what he wants. He will kill his brother. It's pleasure-oriented. They already have arts and entertainment, and it goes on from there. It's characterized by selfishness. Look at the selfishness of Cain, and then we'll follow that line as we go down through the rest of the chapters here. It's characterized by ego and by pride and by violence. Look in chapter 3. I'll just show you. It gives us one illustration here. In chapter 3 and verse number, uh, let's see, 19, there's a man named Lamech. 
Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of one was Ada and the other Zillah. Go down to verse 23. And he said to his wives, he's boasting now to his wives. This guy comes home. He says, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech. For I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. What does he mean by that? Analyze that thought there. You know what he's saying? Because a man wounded me, I got angry and I killed him. So it's a time of violence. It's a time of anger. Remind you of any other culture? A time of anger? A time of violence? A time of murder? The line of Cain, we've gone far from God already very, very quickly. Violence, selfishness, no concern for other people. The only values that people care about are personal gratification, position, power, money. The line of Cain, on the other hand, is a line of people of faith, the people of faith. The people who believe the Word of God, who believe God, who live for God, and who serve Him. And in chapter 4, and in verse number 25, now that Abel is dead, it gives the account that Adam knew his wife, verse 25, and she bare another son, and he called his name Seth. For she said, God hath appointed me another seed, there it is, another line, another seed. God hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel whom Cain slew. And then in verse 26, God gave Seth sons, and he called his name Enos, and then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Mark it in your Bible. There's the first mention of prayer. Men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. To pray, to call upon the name of the Lord means we depend upon God. We don't live our lives autonomously. We believe that there is a higher power to which we appeal. And now there's a line of people here. There's the line of Cain, wicked, selfish, only pleasure-oriented. There's the line of Seth, righteous people, people who depend on God, people who call upon Him and pray. And now the line of the Messiah begins to develop. And we'll go all the way through the Bible. We'll go to Matthew chapter 1. You have that long genealogy. All the names of those people who were in the line of Christ, the righteous people, the people of God, His seed. Hebrews 2.13 says. So, now we see that the fall has occurred and rapidly the great majority of men are going their own way. There's one word that describes the rest of history, and the word is separation. Man's sin separated him from God. Now listen to me real quickly. This is what I'm going to preach next Sunday, but I hope I can get you to come back. Man's sin separated him from God, so we have a spiritual problem. 
We have a spiritual problem. Is there a God? How do I approach that God? How do I need, how do I get to know him? Number two, his sin separated him from himself. And so sin has created a psychological problem. Who am I? We don't know ourselves. And thirdly, sin separated him from other men. So Cain kills his brother. We have a relationship problem. We have a social problem, if you will. And fourthly, sin separated Adam from nature. And so now nature and man are at enmity. The snakes bite and lions devour. And earthquakes destroy and hurricanes and tornadoes and all kinds of bad things come because even nature itself groaneth under the burden, Romans chapter 8, of sin. And the final and ultimate and greatest separation of all that sin caused is the Son of God now hangs on the cross. And he cries out under the burden of sin, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sin separated God from his own son. That's all sin ever does. It separates. And look at our society today. Broken families. Broken people in every way. Broken nations. Because sin separates. And there's two lines. The righteous and the wicked. Our heads are bowed.